want you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 31 this morning. Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 850 and 851. And as you make your way there, let's pray. And we'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for not only his first advent, coming and dying on the cross, being buried and being raised again. The fact that his death is the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the one to pay the penalty for all sin, for all time, Lord, for those who would trust in him. And Lord, as he has ascended and is at your right hand, Lord, we look forward to his return. You just sung about it. Lord, and as we wait, may we turn our eyes to Christ. Lord, not neglecting things of the world around us or the needs or the situations, but Lord, viewing them all in light of Jesus, who gives clarity and purpose and meaning to our lives and Lord, to what you call us to do as being lights to the world around us until he comes. Lord, we pray now for a time of the word that you would use it to make us more like him. We pray in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where am I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Have you ever thought that you could do something 
and you realized you couldn't. Or maybe you said, I can handle this. And yet when you get halfway into it, you're like, nope, I can't. I see that a lot in my children. <laughs> they have big aspirations and very small follow through. Of course, they're seven, five, and three, so I don't know what I'm expecting. But sometimes it's interesting. I can do that. I can do that. No problem. No problem. And then they get into it. Oh, oh, I can carry in that bag of groceries. And they get three steps from the car. It's too heavy. Right? Dad, I can carry the gallon of milk. No, you cannot. <laughs> no, you cannot. That's, that's common. Sometimes we, we look at something and we think, oh, we can handle that or I could do that. But yet when you try it, it is much more difficult than it actually is. Maybe you can talk a big game and say, well, I can, I can master that, no problem. But yet, when you're in the midst of it, you give up. It's too hard. You can't finish the job. Imagine if Jesus, on his way to the cross, as he was celebrating the Passover here with his disciples, says, I can't do it. All of you are going to abandon me and well, I give up. What if he's going to betray me? Forget this whole going to the cross thing. What if Jesus did that? Of course, that would have huge ramifications on the entire bedrock of the Christian faith. But as we come to this passage, and as we look at this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, we see here again and again how the faithfulness of Jesus is so important especially as the faithfulness and willingness of Jesus to be the sacrificial Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. In the midst and in the face of all these difficulties, Jesus remains faithful. He remains steadfast, even though it will hurt him physically and emotionally, and he will bear the weight of the sin of the entire world Jesus still follow through, follows through. Our big idea this morning is this, is that God's purpose and plan operate through the faithfulness of Jesus as the sacrificial Passover lamb that inaugurates the new covenant. Now that's a mouthful. <laughs> but God's overarching purpose and plan of redemption, which we've been talking about, and we will talk about, obviously, because we're making our way to the cross, but this plan of redemption, that's so important for us to remember, because it is the thread that truly ties all of Scripture together, is God redeeming His people. Everything plays into that from various aspects, whether it's realizing, hey, we need somebody to redeem us, or hey, these kings that we have set up are not going to do the job. We need somebody different too. Okay, Christ has come. Now, now, how does he call us to live looking back to the cross? This, this plan of redemption, God's purpose and plan operate through the faithfulness of Jesus. How? He is the sacrificial lamb. And not only just any lamb, but the Passover lamb. It's no coincidence that Jesus and his death occur during the celebration of the Passover and the celebration of unleavened bread. It's like God kind of planned it that way. Isn't that kind of crazy? And through his sacrificial death as the Passover lamb, he inaugurates the new covenant, this new promise, this new agreement that God has made 
through Christ, which we read from Jeremiah 31. God's purpose and plan operate through Jesus and His faithfulness. Even in the face of betrayal and abandonment and difficulty, Jesus is faithful. So we're going to look this morning at these things that demonstrate the faithfulness of Jesus and what it means for us today as we look back to this, but also as we seek to live our lives for Christ today. So first off, as we think of the faithfulness of Jesus here as his Passover lamb, he is faithful and he is the Passover lamb that inaugurates the new covenant and it's in accordance with the sovereignty of God. So our first point is this. Jesus is faithful in accordance with the sovereignty of God. From now until the cross, we'll see a lot of small uh, evidences, small things that just shout and scream to you, hey, God's in charge of all of this. And it first seen here, really, in the timing of this, but then also in the provision for the celebration of the feast. So this is following uh, a day or two after the, the meal at Bethany, where the ointment is poured upon Jesus. And in verse 12, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where, basically, will we celebrate Passover? So it's the first day of unleavened bread. It's a celebration of Passover. If you want to read of the first Passover, look at the beginning chapters of Exodus, around Exodus 12 and 13, as the, the, uh, the ten plagues come to their their culmination in the 10th plague when the angel of death comes down over the nation of Egypt and they are called to take the blood of a lamb and put over their doorposts and they're supposed to roast the goat or, or, the, or the lamb, excuse me, and, and eat it along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And how are they supposed to be dressed when they eat it? Anybody remember? Their staff in their hand and their sandals on their feet because they better be ready to go. <laughs> there's, there's something that's going to be happening following this. But this is the first Passover. And in it, through this, it demonstrates God's judgment upon Egypt. God's judgment upon the wickedness, but also through that, salvation. Through those who have put the blood across their doorposts. And that really is a theme you see again and again, how judgments of God and God's salvation are married together. And truly, God's salvation is highlighted through the judgment. God judges Egypt and the sinful, wicked nation, but yet in the midst of that, he saves those who are faithful and who trust in him. And so Passover here, where they're celebrating it now, is pointing back to that. So it's a reminder of God being the one to deliver his people to provide salvation from judgment. And this is the whole picture of Passover and unleavened bread. And so as they come, the disciples ask Jesus, where will we eat? It was custom and uh, to eat the Passover meal inside the walls of Jerusalem. And he says, they ask, where will we meet? We don't have a house. We don't have a room. You know, we can't uh, rent a hall. What, what are we going to do? There's Thousands of people here. And Jesus says this. He sends two of his disciples. We learn that it's, it's Peter and John in one of the other gospels. And he says, go into the city and find a man carrying a jar of water. That would be unique 
because women were the ones who carried the water for washing and meals and so forth. So it would be very unique to see a man carrying a jar of water. But find this man and follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. So we don't know if this man will see them and they'll talk to him or real creepy-like, they'll see this man and just tail him (laughs) to find out what house he enters. But when they enter that house, they ask the master of the house, the teacher says, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, there's a lot of things here that demonstrate the sovereignty of God. Some commentators believe that Jesus already had this arranged. He already had this deal uh, in place, uh, humanly speaking. Others would take this to be as a sovereignly appointed uh, alignment of things. And, and you could go either way, whatever position you may take on this, I think it's clear that God is sovereign in all of this. Jesus has a plan and he's working it out according to his purpose. The faithfulness of Jesus is in accordance with the sovereignty of God. It's, it's part of everything that God has planned. Enter in. Say to the master, the teacher says, where is my guest room? And verse 15, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare, prepare for us. Meaning, have the food that's necessary and the wine and, and everything you, uh, you need for the Passover meal. So verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. In this brief section of time and setting, Mark demonstrates for us in detail about this process of finding the room. Whether Jesus organized it without his disciples knowing, or this is a miraculous event by the power of God, it demonstrates that everything that is happening is squarely under the control of God. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. Jesus' death wasn't something that was not seen by God or unknown to him. Even the events leading up to it, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And we're going to see that again and again through him calling out his disciples, one who will betray him, one who will abandon him, but also the fact through the institution of the Lord's Supper, he knows he's going to die. He knows this. The disciples do as Jesus commands. They find everything just as he had told them. And they were ready for the Passover. Again and again in the following events, we will see that Jesus is self-controlled, understanding the sovereignty of God that is at work, and that he rests in that. This communicates that everything that is about to happen is not outside of God's control, but is exactly as the sovereign plan of God has determined. This is not a hiccup in the plan of redemption, but the continuing action of bringing redemption about. Jesus here, as they celebrate the Passover, as they will eat of the meal, and as Jesus institutes this this new covenant, it's a continuation of everything that they've been celebrating for thousands of years, but yet even more than that, it's a fulfillment in the plan of God of what he has been working things to, the sacrifice of his own son. Jesus is the faithful Passover lamb in accordance with the sovereignty of God. And he is faithful in accordance with the sovereignty of God, but also in the face of betrayal, 
our next section here in verses 17 to 20, or excuse me, 21. So it was evening, it was after 6 p.m., and they have come and they're eating. He came with the 12, and they were reclining at the table and eating. So here they are, eating the Passover meal, and there were several, uh, several um, uh, patterns to this meal of different cups that they would drink at certain times, and, and different parts of the meal that meant different things. It's fascinating, uh, the symbolism that was used to remind them and to teach them. Uh, a back and forth between the youngest, um, uh, the youngest male child to the oldest uh, man there who's overseeing the Passover. Uh, there's some interesting things. But in the midst of this meal as they were eating, Jesus says this. He says, truly I say to you, that word truly I say to you, that's the verily, verily I say unto thee from the King James. It literally means amen and amen means this will happen. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Talk about a conversation, either starter or killer right there, right? When you're at a meal and you're trying to think of things to talk about, some of you are good at that. I'm thankful for my wife. She's good at carrying on conversation. I'm either really good or I'm like shut off. I'm like no in between, right? <laughs> uh, this one uh, would be, it'd be a real damper on the situation. Truly, I truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So here's Jesus and his 12 disciples, the 13 of them, enjoying this meal, the Last Supper, as it's been come to know, uh, come known to be known as. And Jesus stops and he looks at him and says, one of you will betray me. You know, Peter almost chokes on his wine and somebody else coughs out a piece of bread and, and the other ones look at each other and like, what, what? One of you will betray me? Look at their response in verse 19. They begin to be sorrowful. Because Jesus doesn't necessarily point fingers at anybody here in Mark's account. He said to them, it is one of the 12. And they're asking, is it I, in verse 19? They don't know. Is it me? Lord, is it me? Is, is, it, is, is it me? He says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, some clarification on that statement. Some people think, you know, Jesus had his chip and was going for a piece of, you know, some salsa there. And you meet hands. You ever done that? You ever have a dip at a, and you go in, it's like kind of awkward. And no, you first, you first. You know, is that double dipping? Did you take a bite out of that carrot? Like, um, it's not that. It's not like he was reaching out and, and Judas was reaching out at the same time. What he's talking about is that one of you 12 who are partaking in this meal with me will betray me. One of you who is eating with me, who is celebrating this Passover, it's this close communion, this idea of being one of my followers, one of my disciples, somebody who I've spent so much time and energy. Remember, these 12 have basically lived side by side with Jesus for three years. They've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've seen him do miraculous things from healings to casting out demons to taking, you know, a few loaves and two fish and feeding thousands. They've been through storms with Jesus. They've, they've been ridiculed and, and seen this. And they know Jesus just about as well as anybody on earth has. And they've interacted with him. They've seen behind, quote, unquote, the facade. They've seen 
behind the curtain, right? You can know somebody in, in a way that you see them do things, but then to spend time with them in a personal way, you learn more about them, right? And sometimes you do that and you're like, Or you spend time behind the curtain with them, and you're like, oh, they are exactly who they are on the other side. The disciples knew Jesus as well as anybody. But here, Jesus predicts, foretells that one of them will betray him. And he says this, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus understands that as the Son of Man as the one who has come to die. He says, this is, this is how it goes. This is the, the plan and purpose. This points back to, to Mark 10, verse 45, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, the Son of Man, his, his job is to go and give his life as a ransom. This is, this is who I am. This is what I am to do. He says, but woe or judgment to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. And he says this, it would have been better for that man to never have been born than to betray the Son of Man. And we know who that person is. In Mark's account, it's still hidden in a sense to his disciples. We are aware of it because of Mark 14 verses 10 through 11 that Judas is the one who's going to betray him. But in a sense, it's this mystery to the disciples. They don't know. We know as we read this that it's Judas. You ever watch a movie or read a book and you're like screaming in your head, it's that person. <laughs> Jesus knows. Judas in his heart knows because of his actions already. In the face of betrayal, Jesus continues on in faithfulness. He knows the hurt that is coming. The betrayer is going to ultimately bring woe upon himself. Jesus warns Judas. Some would take this to be even a, a plea for him not to. Of course, in the sovereign plan of God, we know that Judas follows through. But here is the warning from Jesus to this individual. Judgment is coming upon you. In the face of this betrayal, Jesus is faithful to his purpose and his part in the plan of redemption. I think this is interesting as Jesus communicates this betrayal because this isn't just talking behind somebody's back. This isn't, you know, speaking ill of them to a friend. This is betrayal to death. Betrayal to the ultimate judgment. This hurt that it brings is something that you and I can relate to to a certain extent. Somebody you know for, you care for, you've invested and poured your time into, all of a sudden they turn their back on you. Somebody who you love, you're good friends with, then all of a sudden, they don't want that anymore. But yet Jesus continues on. He knows he will be betrayed, but yet he is faithful when one of those who is closest to him in an earthly way betrays him to his enemy. Jesus is faithful in the face of betrayal. As we continue on here, we look at Jesus' faithfulness and God's sovereignty in the face of betrayal. But here, in full awareness of coming suffering, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And we see this through the institution here of the Lord's Supper. Verse 22. They were eating. So imagine the, the, the atmosphere of this room. 
as this has already been pronounced. And now they're eating and they're asking, they're questioning within themselves, is it me, is it me, is it you? I don't know. Looking around, staring at people. But as they were eating, Jesus does this. He took bread and after blessing it, giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Now, handing out bread and bread being part of this meal is very normal, but what Jesus is doing is he's taking this Passover meal that was to remind the Jews of what had happened back in Egypt and how God has provided salvation and how he continues to protect his people again and again and again. And he takes this meal, and he doesn't just say, you don't need this anymore, but he takes it. And in taking certain aspects of the meal, heightens it, changes the emphasis from, what has happened to what is going to happen. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he hands it out and he says, this is my body. He says, this is, this is my body. That's how Mark records. Of course, Luke and Matthew and John give some accounts of this as well. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 11, they flesh out a little bit more of what was said. But Jesus very simply says, take, this is my body. Now, is this Jesus' literal body? No. It is bread, unleavened bread, flat. He would break it. He'd tear off pieces. He'd hand it out. He's not saying in some mysterious, mysterious magical, miraculous way, this, this bread becomes my body. No. <laughs> it's bread. Because everything else that they had been eating was a symbol of something. It was a picture. Same thing here. So he takes the bread, he breaks it, he hands it out, and he gave it to them. And then he took a cup. There were several different cups of wine that were drank at certain points in the Passover meal to symbolize things, but he takes one of the cups and, and, and he drinks it. He drinks it and he says to them, this is my blood, and, and he passes around that they all drink of it. Growing up in a Lutheran church, when we would take communion, we would walk forward and you had the opportunity to put your hand out for the little cup and you could take that, or you could wait for the pastor to pass along and, and have the chalice and take a drink from the chalice. Talk about a super spreader thing right there, you know. It's like, come on, a little napkin, like that was really going to sanitize anything. But the idea is that they're partaking all in the same thing. They're taking the same cup. It's, it's, it's the idea that it's the same blood from the same body. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. The other gospels say the blood of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians says that there's even a footnote in the ESV here in uh, verse 24. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why is this important? Because Jesus here is instituting the Lord's Supper, this memorial service, this reminder of his sacrifice, but he's also demonstrating how he is the initiator of the new covenant. The new covenant, we read from Jeremiah 31, it's also found in Ezekiel. It is what is replacing the old covenant. The old covenant was the agreement between God and the nation of Israel through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the, the law, the sacrificial system. And what did Moses do to signify the covenant being 
agreed upon between the nation and God. He took blood of a sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people. It's interesting, that idea of blood covering. What else did blood cover that we've already been talking about? The lamp or the, the posts of the door, right? And why blood? Blood symbolizes life. There is life in the blood. And that's what the blood symbolizes. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood, this is the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood is the blood that is being sprinkled over the people. Because he is the sacrifice that demonstrates the agreement of this covenant. This agreement. What secures this agreement between God and his people? It's the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. This blood is the, of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many, meaning it is for, is for many. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, it says, I will not drink of the fruit of the Passover. So it's not that Jesus will, won't drink uh, the fruit of the vine, because he does that where he eats and drinks with his disciples, but rather he will not celebrate the Passover in this sense again until the kingdom of God. When he returns for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when there is this feast, this culmination of everything that God is setting right. But this demonstration of this new covenant where God fully redeems his people shows the fact that Jesus understands, this is our third point here, that in full awareness of coming suffering, he is faithful. Because how did you come to this agreement in a covenant? It's through the sacrifice, through a, a sacrifice. And Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the one who is put on the altar, whose blood is spilled out, who is sprinkled upon the people that makes them clean. In describing the sacrifice and the imagery of atonement, Jesus clearly understands what his coming death means. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through his death, redemption is secured. In full awareness of coming suffering, Jesus is faithful to the plan of redemption. He is not a hesitant Savior. He is not a reluctant sacrifice. He willingly offers himself as a substitute for sinners. There's a vein of thinking today that would posit that Jesus was not our substitute, that he wasn't necessary for him to die, and that they don't like the idea of substitutionary atonement, like a fancy word. We know what the word substitute means, right? In place of another. And then atonement means uh, sacrifice or covering. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for us. We should have died. He was our substitute. And through his substitution, his blood was the payment for our sins. That's so important. We cannot have a Christian faith without that because otherwise, none of us are righteous enough to stand before God. We need that substitute. We need that, that perfect sacrifice, the one to take away our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That sounds like a substitution to me. 
In the midst of this, in full awareness of coming suffering, Jesus is this faithful sacrifice, this faithful Passover lamb that inaugurates this new covenant. And I love this. This new covenant depends upon the blood of the covenant, which is Jesus. He's the perfect sacrifice. We understand Hebrews, right? In the old covenant, they had to keep offering sacrifices because the sacrifices were only good, in a sense, for a certain amount of time, and the people would sin, and, and they would falter and fail, and they need more sacrifices. Jesus, perfect sacrifice. When we trust in that sacrifice, we are washed clean. We are in his righteousness. No other sacrifice is needed. We are perfect in Christ. In full awareness of coming suffering, Jesus is faithful. And lastly, he is faithful in spite of abandonment. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. More than likely that hymn was one of the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, it was often sung during the Passover. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember, the Mount of Olives is opposite to the city of, of Jerusalem. They would go down and then up to the Mount of Olives as it, it faced uh, this is where they were at in Mark 13 when they looked back out over Jerusalem. So they go back to the Mount of Olives. And as they were walking, Jesus said to them, once again, just a lot of great conversation starters Jesus has here tonight. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a, a quotation from Zechariah, which I know you often read in your devotions. <laughs> Zechariah 13, verse 7, where in this prophecy, it's talking about the leaders of the nation and how in God's sovereignty, uh, the leaders are struck and the nation scatters. But here Jesus applies this to him. He says, you will all fall away, meaning to the disciples. You will all abandon me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep will be scattered. And it's true, right? Jesus is arrested. Which disciple remains faithful? None of them. Peter will come to deny Jesus three times. They will maybe see the events. Some believe that John found his way into the trial and could see it, but he wasn't standing there saying, Yay, go, T go Jesus. I I'm defending you. No, he's just witnessing it. They run. They hide. They're scared. They scatter. But Jesus says, but after I'm raised up, verse 28, imagine all this, hearing this as a disciple. You're all going to fall away. You're all going to abandon me. But afterwards, after I've been crucified, after I'm dead, but after I'm raised up, I will come to you in Galilee. Jesus is already demonstrating. He knows his resurrection is coming. But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. They will abandon him. But yet Jesus remains Faithful. Faithful not only to God's purpose, but also to his disciples. He wasn't like, all right, I'm getting new disciples. Forget you guys. You know, now taking applications for disciples. My other guys left me when things got tough. Anybody? You know, pay is poor. No housing allowance. No house even, you know. It's like, no. He goes back to the same disciples. What we see here even the pride of the disciples in their abandonment. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And we say, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. But yet, how often are we Peter? <laughs> I'd never do that. I can't believe somebody would. 
sin like that. I die with him. We are far more like Peter than we think. Because in our frail humanness, often when things get hard, we run away. We deny. Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, not once, not twice, but three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's got some gusto. He means it, right? And we'll see here in a little bit that he's, he's wanting to fight. And the poor guy gets his ear cut off because of that. Of course, awesome miracle happened there with Jesus. But he says, if I must die, I will not deny you. And verse 31, and they all said the same. In their fallen humanness, they don't fully comprehend what Jesus is talking about, what's coming. And they say, oh, no, Lord, we'll never abandon you. But yet they do. Those closest to Jesus, whom he had shared the last three years with almost 24-7, will fail their master. But in spite of this, Jesus continues on to his ultimate Arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. But through it all, Jesus remains faithful. And those who he has come to save have abandoned him, yet he does not abandon them. Imagine that. What? You all leave me? I'm not going to die for you. Because that's how we think in our earthly human thinking, is that when somebody treats me wrong, well, forget about me being anything nice or polite or kind for you, or demonstrating benevolence in your direction. If I'm wronged, I'm going to wrong you. But yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus is betrayed, he's abandoned, he's falsely accused and imprisoned and put on trial in a kangaroo court, he's crucified, but yet, he still follows through and is faithful to the plan of God. He is faithful to those who he has come to save, even though they have turned their backs on him. This incident pictures the gospel so clearly. Jesus accomplished redemption for those who abandon him, who betray him, and yet he still offers the hope of forgiveness and salvation. How many of us would do the same? When we're betrayed or abandoned, we turn on people with a vengeance. Yet in the sovereign, gracious plan of God, these events show again and again the faithfulness of Jesus and the heart of the gospel, that God, through his beloved son, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins, who is the, the initiator of the new covenant, whose blood secures the covenant, who is the one who takes our punishment through him and his death, we have forgiveness, even though we have all turned our backs on him. He's the one who atones for our sin. He is the one who dies for us, even when we were his enemies. I love Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that God demonstrates his love for us, then when we had finally gotten our act together, he decided to send Jesus to die for us. God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were still sinners, when we've abandoned him, when we've betrayed him, when we've had rebelled against him, Christ died for us. So for us today, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a faithful Savior who loves you, 
You have a faithful Savior who through the sovereign plan of God has secured redemption for you and now calls you to live for him and to live out what you believe about him, to live out the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, I'm going to get even. The gospel says, no, even though you've mistreated me, I'm going to seek to show you generosity and benevolence because that's what Christ has done for us. It's not taking offense, but rather it's seeking to love and encourage and to be gracious. It's realizing that we all deserve what Christ went through, but yet he went through it for us. So those of you who are here and do not know Christ as your Savior, this is the offer, that there is a Savior who has come, who is faithful, who does not cut corners, but rather is faithful to the end, who can deliver you from your sins, who is the ultimate Passover lamb, who through, by putting your faith and trust in him, you have forgiveness of sins and you have newness of life. God's purpose and plan operate through the faithfulness of Jesus as the sacrificial Passover lamb that inaugurates the new covenant, this new way of life for all who put their trust May we be faithful as he is faithful. And when we're not faithful, remember, he always is. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, help us. Help us to be so enraptured with who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. Lord, that as we desire to live for him, that you help us remain faithful, that you hold us, you hold us fast. Lord, for those of us here who may be struggling with sin, ongoing frustration, remind us that the blood of Jesus has paid for it. And Lord, you call us to confess that sin and to be made right with you, to have that restored relationship. And Lord, for those who may not know Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes to their need of a Savior, that they would find Christ, they would repent of their sin and trust in him. Lord, receive the wonderful gift of eternal life. Lord, we love you. Pray for all this in your son's name.